Thank you for downloading the Bristol Lectures podcast, brought to you by the University of the West of England. In this podcast, we are joined by Warren East CBE, Chief Executive Officer of Rolls-Royce. Good evening. I would like to welcome you all on what is such a beautiful evening outside. Um, It's so good to see so many of you here. Uh, We're really proud to welcome Warren East this evening, who's the Chief Executive Officer of Rolls-Royce. And today he'll be talking to us about how the UK can be a natural home for global engineering and technology champions. I'm really proud to be able to stand in front of you. My name's Lisa Brody. I am the Head of Department for Engineering, Design and Mathematics here at the University. And I wanted to just take one moment to give a tiny plug to a very exciting thing that's happening for us. Exactly opposite this beautiful business school, we will shortly be having a new engineering purpose-built facility that will open in 18 months' time. And if any of you are interested in finding out a little bit more about that, I will be hanging around later, and I'll be very, very happy to talk to you about it. So the format of the evening for you today is, in a moment, I will pass over to our graduate showcase, a gentleman called Arthur, who is a graduate from Team Entrepreneurship here in the Business School. Then we will hand over to Cathy Dodson, who is the chair of the CPD, and then um, we'd be delighted to um, listen to what Warren has to tell us this evening. Finally, we'll be closing with Catherine Hobbs, who is our Associate Dean in the Faculty of Environment and Technology, who will chair the question and answer session that will follow. Okay, a tiny bit of housekeeping. We don't have a planned fire alarm this evening, but you never know. So if that happens, um, please follow my my colleagues who will escort you out of the fire exits of the building. We would also encourage you to to get involved as the evening goes on. So we've got a hashtag, which I'm hoping is up behind me. There we go, hashtag Bristol Lecture. So please do tweet about your experience this evening and share how you found it. Uh, The interview itself will be available after the event, technology dependent, and there will also be a downloadable podcast that you can listen to. And finally, that's all there is from me this evening, other than to thank you again for making the time to come and join us this evening. And I will now hand over to Arthur from Team Entrepreneurship. Given the subject of tonight's talk, I feel like a little bit of a fraudster up here. I don't do technology and I'm not an engineer. (laughs) However, I did graduate from this business school and I did the Team Entrepreneurship Programme. Along with another UE graduate from the business school, I have founded a robotics (coughs) business. We're based in the University Enterprise Zone, just to the other side of this building, next to the Bristol Robotics Lab. Whilst at business school, I was always very interested in how businesses offered their services and particularly the growing trend in the subscription model. Rolls-Royce have shown how this is a very powerful model themselves with their power by the hour service they offer as well, and the ability for customers to give you a regular fee for a service that they want on a recurring basis. The ability to build an ongoing relationship with your customers and give them what they want when they want, I think is definitely a way business should be done. Companies like Harry's and Dollar Shave Club have made huge success in the male grooming industry 
and have built very, very successful businesses off the back of this. And it made me wonder, why hasn't this business model been applied to the female subscription market? And we were looking into it, and there was no reason why this service shouldn't be offered to provide women with what they need on a monthly basis, regularly. It was clear to us, supermarkets and their large suppliers provide products for markets and not for the individuals who buy them. Why couldn't we offer a more personalised service? Harry's the Razor Company offer razors every single month, exactly the amount you need, when you want them. So why couldn't we replicate this for the female subscription market? Our research quite quickly showed that this was an incredibly complex problem to tackle <laughs> and that we had to potentially be shipping a million boxes a month and every single box could be unique. No box would be the same. The only way we could see to deliver a business that could grow and scale from this was to build robots and bring them into our operation from day one. And this realisation brought us to the point of technology and their impact on SMEs within this country and working closely with them. Robotics are often seen as a bit for the big companies, the sort of car manufacturers with large production lines or companies with complex manufacturing processes and their robotic systems. However, we now live in the post-smartphone generation where the rollout of billions of devices has allowed technology that startups could only have dreamt of a few years ago, having access to it cheaply and freely. When we combine additive manufacturing processes, such as low-cost 3D modelling, startups can do more than ever before. And this provides a really exciting opportunity for startups to innovate and push the boundaries of what is possible and disrupt big business. This creates the chance to crack the problem with the subscription market here. We're building a flexible, automated packing system which allows us to provide hyper-personalised services to all of our customers. Delivering a mix of products when they want it, how they want it, whilst reducing the cost of what potentially could have been a very, very expensive fulfilment process. What I've learned from this is it's learning the skills you need to be successful and not just saying, I've learned what I've learned and that is what I can do. From this, we're looking to speak to people who have technical know-how and engineering backgrounds as we take this journey forward. And I wish you all a lovely evening and enjoy the talk. Good evening, everybody. My name is Cathy Dodsworth, and I'm the volunteer chair of the West of England branch of the Chartered Institute of Personnel and Development. I'm here this evening as CIPD are a recent partner to the Distinguished Address series, and I'm joined this evening by a small group of our fellows from the CIPD. Some of you may be questioning, the, what's the connection between a lecture on engineering and technology and the professional body for HR and development? But actually, one of the biggest debates about work today and for the future is about skills. What do we need? What are the gaps? And how do we access or develop them? And quite topically, how is Brexit going to impact on our ability to recruit? Technical skills, particularly, is an area many companies have difficulty in recruiting. So if the UK is to take advantage of new technologies and engineering in the future, then the HR profession absolutely needs to be at the table involved in those discussions. So I'm delighted that I was able to be here to introduce Warren this evening. 
Warren, as we've mentioned before, has, be has became the chief executive of Rolls-Royce in July 2015. He's also a non-executive director of Dyson Limited and a fellow of a variety of institutes, which include the Institute of Engineering and Technology, the Royal Academy of Engineering, the Royal Aeronautical Society, and he's a distinguished fellow of the BCS. In 2007, Warren was named Business Leader of the Year at the National Business Award and was named in Barron's list of the world's best 30 CEOs for two years in 2011 and 2013. In addition to all those, Warren was made CBE in the 2014 New Year's Honours list for his services to engineering and technology. I'm sure you will agree we're in great company this <coughs> evening and will enjoy a great lecture. Ladies and gentlemen, can I introduce Warren East? Thanks, uh, thanks very much, Cathy. Um, hopefully, uh, yes, this has definitely turned on, and I'm just going to take hold of that... Uh, that pointer very shortly because we've got a few few slides to um, you know, if, if what I'm saying gets a bit boring then you can look at the pictures uh, <coughs> um, so I had to come up with a with a with a title uh, for this talk and you know this is a subject which is um, is quite near and dear really um, I'm an engineer by training I'll talk a little bit about the license that I have to come and do a talk like uh, like this in a moment um, and uh, I'm, I'm also having, uh, having done uh, a handful of, of different, um, different jobs in the UK in a, in a world of engineering, which is quite a sort of global world, then one of the things that I find really quite exciting about, uh, about it is, uh, is helping UK companies uh, succeed on a global stage. And uh, so, so putting those two things together, uh, I thought, well, you know, it, it's something to, to have a talk about. So uh, where do I come from? Well, I'm an engineer by background. You probably gathered that from, the, uh, from Cathy's introduction. But I was actually delighted to have uh, Cathy do that introduction from the CIPD because one of the things that I learnt early on uh, as an engineer, uh, engineers do tend to be dreadfully, uh, you know, we, we know that we can solve all of, all of mankind's problems and we don't really need anybody from any other disciplines. Uh, and that is how I was, actually, until the age of about uh, 27 or 28. Uh, and um, I learnt uh, that actually you need, you need balanced teams. And um, now I've had uh, a thing ever since, really, that it's all about the people. And uh, so I can talk about all the engineering stuff, but unless you have the right people behaving in the right way, then turning all that fancy engineering into a business that works um, is, is quite a challenge. And so a humbling exercise for a 27-year-old engineer, but, um, but one that was very worthwhile. So uh, I started in the, world of, uh, in the world of electronics, having done a general engineering degree. And, and you know, my first job was actually just across the other side of the Seven Bridge, uh, in uh, in Cumbran, and uh, we were making oscillators for um, for display monitors. Um, quick, it was a bit of a pain, and I wasn't really very good at it. Uh, and uh, I, I learnt quite early that um, 
the world of semiconductors was was coming into this, and actually there was no point in designing this fancy oscillator because some chap who was much cleverer than I could ever be at doing it would uh, would design it, and um, and you know it would appear as as a silicon chip. And if you were building a display monitor, then you know you just buy the chip. So um, I moved into the semiconductor uh, industry. And that was really, really uh, exciting and a fantastic uh, place to be at the beginning of the 1980s. Uh, and uh, I had a fantastic time um, for, for the following uh, almost 30 years. Um, I was lucky enough to join ARM, which is a UK uh, microprocessor company. Um, and uh, we had a great journey at ARM. Uh, I became CEO in about 2001. And... Um, I, I left ARM having been CEO for about 12 years in, uh, in 2013. Uh, and um, a lot of what I talk about this evening is, uh, is, is drawn from some of that experience at ARM. Uh, but as you heard, a couple of years ago, uh, I was, again, as an engineer, dream job, um, offered, the, uh, offered the chance to uh, join Rolls-Royce and, and be the CEO at Rolls-Royce. having. Having grown up uh, close to Bristol, just the other side of the Seven Bridge, um, <clears throat> given the opportunity to run Rolls-Royce, I was not going to say no. And so um, I moved from, uh, from a little bit of a sort of in-between, two, two years of in-between and not doing an executive role, uh, to, uh, to Rolls-Royce in 2015. And Rolls-Royce I would describe as an industrial technology company. Um, basically, uh, we... We do products that, uh, you know, we have a lot of domain expertise in aerospace. Two-thirds of Rolls-Royce's business is in aerospace. So there's decades of domain expertise. Um, however, if you look at the core engineering expertise, it's about taking stored energy and turning it into useful power and deploying a chunk of different technologies uh, to, to do that. Um, and, uh, yeah, we manufacture our, our engines, and uh, as was mentioned by Arthur, Rolls-Royce pioneered the power-by-the-hour uh, service approach. Um, that business model, by the way, is identical to the ARM business model with licensing and royalty, uh, and it is a very powerful business model. Um, and uh, <coughs> that's, that's why it says manufacturing and service there, because... In order to extract that um, by the hour revenue stream, we obviously have to deliver a service uh, to um, airline customers and they have to perceive value in that service. Now, um, as an engineer, uh, I've always been inspired by nature. Um, my theory is that nature is the world's best engineer, actually, and we've got a few examples of that coming later. Um, and uh, so having grown up in that sort of environment, um, uh, that's something to sort of bear in mind when we're thinking about how good we can be as engineers. Um, nature uh, set, sets the bar. Sorry, I don't know what the uh, inter interference is. So anyway, a little bit of context. Here we are in 2020. And um, if you look back in time and forward in time, look back in time to, um, say, 1950 and forward in time to 2050, 
couple of things strike me. The world population in 1950 was about two and a half billion people. Today it's about seven billion. And in 2050, it's going to be around 10 billion. Uh, the planet has stayed exactly the same size. Uh, it, and the poor old planet has to support in 2050 four times as many people as it supported in 1950. Uh, and actually more and more people are finding their way into, uh, into cities, the, uh, the image on the right-hand side of the slides there. So what does that mean? Well, actually, people are getting older, and the histogram on the slide here shows the support ratio, and that's the number of people of working age compared with the number of people of, of uh, older people. And you can see that that ratio is shifting dramatically over that 100-year period as well. So the people that are actually doing stuff and generating, uh, generating uh, wealth and creating value um, compared with the number of people that are basically living off all that um, is, uh, is shifting. So health is, is, is quite a problem and as people get older and there are fewer people generating the money to pay for all that health. Um, food, if we've got four times as many people on the planet Four of them are living in cities, by the way, so they expect decent, decent feed. But the problem is that the world's landmass, uh, you know, you think it's quite big, but actually a lot of it is completely inhospitable and completely inappropriate for growing crops. Uh, you know, you can't grow that many crops in the desert. You can't grow that many crops on the ice caps. You can't grow that many crops up mountains. So we have a very finite space in the world for... Uh, feeding the population. Water is another one. Um, so the pictures here, you know, the, the world is massive. You, you go on a boat on the, on the sea and you think, blimey, there's loads and loads of water, isn't there? Well, actually, the blue, uh, the, the sort of medium-sized dot, the one in the middle of the bigger blue dot, is the, uh, it represents the usable water. And it's only about 3% of the world's total water that is usable. The little dot, is the portion of the usable water that we can actually get at to use. Uh, and that's tiny. And um, the, the, the ratio is something like a basketball to, uh, to a ping pong ball, uh, to a ping pong ball to uh, a grain of, uh, of maize. So um, that's, uh, we haven't got much water either. Um, <clears throat> we, we would have quite a lot of water if we could desalinate um, some of the seawater, of course, but that takes energy. Uh, and energy is, uh, is the other thing that is in very, um, very sort of limited supply. Certainly clean energy. And for the last, what, 200 years or so, uh, we've, uh, our sort of solution to energy has been setting fire to hydrocarbons of, uh, of one kind or another. Uh, and um, at Rolls-Royce, by the way, a lot of our revenue is associated with setting fire to hydrocarbons. Um, so, you know, we're not particularly proud of this at the moment, and uh, maybe there's an opportunity to, to do some changes. The 4%, by the way, is the gap uh, that existed a year or two ago. I, I'm not sure what the current number is, but it's, it's pretty small. The gap between um, demand and, and capacity uh, in the UK. So, you know, we operate fairly close to, uh, to, to the, the limits of... You know how much energy we can generate, and so as we seek to um, to uh, 
make sure we don't trash the, uh, the, the planet completely. Uh, we need to be careful about how much we've got spare. And I could add a fifth as well, but I won't go into that really. Uh, as, um, as, uh, as the world's population grows, so there is, and we can certainly see this in the West, and we've seen it politically in the West over the, the last several years, um, there's, a, there's a growing uh, equality gap called, well, inequality. So these are some big challenges. And, you know, my contention is that engineering, whilst not a panacea, uh, is, um, ha has an, a very important role to play in addressing these big societal challenges. So uh, drawing on some experience at ARM, you can see some fantastic applications for, uh, for small, embedded, very, very uh, light power um, microprocessors in the world of healthcare. Uh, looking after people, making them, uh, making them last longer, monitoring, monitoring health conditions and so on. Um, in terms of uh, feeding crops more, more, more efficiently so that we can get higher yields out of, uh, out of the, the crops that we grow. Again, you know, applications for engineering uh, and technology, uh, same with water and so on, and the same with energy. And, you know, I'm not going to talk this evening about everything here, uh, and so I'm just going to draw on some experience from ARM and from Rolls-Royce, uh, and in, in both those instances talk about energy. Um, so here is a little chart of uh, six years worth of microprocessors um, from, uh, from around the time of uh, Apple introducing the iPhone, and the little blue dots are are basically the smartphone processors, um, and the vertical axis is relative performance. So over six years, the, what we expect to get out of our smartphone um, is, uh, is driven by the processing capability, and it, it grows by about 15 times over, over that six years. Now, some of that comes from Moore's law, shrinking of the, of, of the silicon, um, but, uh, but actually at at about sort of 2x every 18 months over six years, you, you don't get 15 times. Uh, so some of the extra performance comes from more sophisticated design. Uh, but having a, having a microprocessor that basically does twice as much uh, computing, um, there's this horrible thing called sort of like law of conservation of energy and second law of thermodynamics and so on. And you actually have to put more power in uh, to get more processing uh, power out. Um, and the interesting thing with smartphones is that they are all a, roughly the same size and they're going to be the same size because somebody came up with a design with a microphone and an earpiece and the distance between your mouth and your ear is about the same. It doesn't change. Uh, and so the battery size is, is limited and um, therefore uh, to get that extra processing power you, the, the creative design bit is making the microprocessor more and more efficient because over that six years, um, the battery uh, or the energy density in the battery um, doesn't increase by much. And I'll show you that in, uh, in a moment or two. So it basically has to come out of ingenuity uh, from, uh, from the engineers. And that's a smartphone example. Uh, looking, looking wider 
in, in applications of microprocessors in, in energy. Here's a snapshot of how we use the world's electricity. And this data is a little, uh, it's about 2012 data. Um, but again, it hasn't actually changed that much. So motors account for a huge, electric motors account for a huge amount of uh, the world's uh, electricity consumption. And uh, that's because we have electric motors everywhere. Big electric motors, tiny, tiny little electric motors all over the place. Um, and uh, what, can, what can microprocessors do about that? Well, microprocessors can be applied at a system level, both within the motor and at the system level, to make the motors more efficient. And making smart motors uh, can improve the efficiency by variously uh, 25 to 30 plus percent. Uh, and therefore, we can basically require less energy. Um, similarly, with lighting, electronic systems probably has grown over the last um, five or six years. This is basically the internet uh, and um, you know, data centers and, uh, and, and the like. Um, and again, that's something which we take for granted, but actually takes a huge amount of energy. And the servers that are required to power the internet take vast amounts of energy and it takes vast amount of energy to cool those servers and uh, keep them keep them uh, functional as well so again applying ingenuity and uh, clever microprocessors to, to to make more efficient use of that energy is a good thing when i joined rolls royce i thought well this is a different world um, Oh, actually, it's pretty similar um, <clears throat> because once again we've got uh, we've got an issue with energy. Um, the graph shows the the basically the demand. People love either either getting on and off aeroplanes or um, well, I mean they don't really, but uh, the experience I'm sure could be better. Uh, however. Um, if the demand is anything to go by, people love getting on and off aeroplanes. Um, and uh, people love ordering goods um, that get shipped around the world on aeroplanes as well. And so um, the, the graph is, is basically showing uh, increase in demand. And if we're going to do all that much more flying, then we're going to use lots, lots, lots more uh, energy. Um, but we don't want to use lots more energy because, don't forget, it's based on setting fire to hydrocarbons and uh, that cooks the planet and makes it harder for the food and the water uh, and, and so on and harder to support the population uh, in, in 2050. <coughs> so once again, the challenge is to apply some ingenuity to make the thing more efficient. So efficient flying machines, efficient flying machines, why have I got snooker balls there? Well, that's because to make an aeroplane go, it's a bit like making a snooker ball um, uh, move. Um, one snooker ball hits another snooker ball. Well, one mass of air um, moves in one direction and the aeroplane moves in the other direction, up, up and down uh, and, uh, uh, and also side to side. Um, and so that's all about momentum. And so if we want to make the aeroplane go a bit faster, then we make the air go a bit faster. Um, but that's a bit of a problem because if we make the air go a bit faster, uh, then the energy to make that air go faster all has to come from the fuel. 
uh, and um, the energy is, is related to the square of the speed. And so we're going to get pretty inefficient pretty quickly. Uh, and so instead of making the air go faster, we want to shift more air. Uh, and uh, to shift more air, uh, we need to make the, make the fan at the front of the engine bigger. Uh, and that's the sort of direction of travel that companies like Rolls-Royce have been engaged on for, uh, for many years. And so you look at a, an old aeroplane today and compare an engine today on a new aeroplane with the old, old one. And uh, the biggest difference you'll notice is the size of the fan on, on the front. And we can go on making that bigger up to a point. Um, the main challenge with it is that as you make it bigger, it gets heavier. And don't forget, this is an aeroplane. Uh, so um, making it heavier is, uh, is you know, it only works up, up, to, up to a point. Um, so future directions would be, uh, instead, of, uh, instead of having a mechanical shaft, so that the engine turns a mechanical shaft and turn, turns a fan at the front, um, how about making the engine drive a generator and distribute the power electrically, uh, and then you can shift a much larger mass of air um, and make the thing uh, make the thing more efficient. So that's some of the uh, some of the things that our engineers are involved in, uh, and I can see some of our folks in the room. I don't know if anyone's involved on the on the hybrid uh, activity, um, but it's certainly a direction of travel um, for uh, for us at the moment as an industry. Um, folks at Rolls-Royce like, uh, like showing the pictures of the turbine blades um, because uh, to make, uh, before we get as far as hybrids, to, uh, to make the setting hydrocarbons uh, more efficient, uh, we, uh, we make them burn at a higher temperature and so on. And if you burn them at a higher temperature, then the turbine blades that, that actually uh, take the energy out of the hot air and turn it into work um, get it, get hot, uh, and um, our engineers love likening this to um, to putting an ice cube in an oven, and that's not a bad picture. Except if you sort of think when, when I first saw that picture, I thought, "God, oh, that's cool," and then I thought, "Well, actually, it's a bit like making a baked Alaska." Um, you know, you just basically insulate the ice cream with uh, with a bit of meringue, and you stick it in the oven, and um, you know, it gets a bit singed around the outside, so what's hard about that? What's hard about that is that when you make a baked Alaska, it, it only takes a few minutes in the oven. Um, that airplane engine, of course, has to be up there for hours. Uh, and so that poor little turbine blade uh, doesn't, doesn't come out of the oven when it's a bit singed. It stays in the oven for a very long time. Uh, and then it has a little rest on the ground, and then it goes off for another uh, very long time, and it does that for day after day after day. Uh, and so to, uh, to actually do the ice cube in the oven in that sort of environment is really quite an innovative challenge. Other types of innovation from the world of, uh, from the world of um, uh, fast microprocessors and uh, efficient electric systems as well. Um, uh, yes, we can make the silicon uh, structures much smaller, uh, but there eventually there becomes a limit to how much smaller you can make them. And so to get more and more, in this instance is uh, in uh, NAND, it's memory that 
sits on your smartphone, for instance, um, to, uh, to get more memory, uh, then you could make the chip bigger and bigger, but that's, that's quite expensive. And the problem is, as you make it bigger, the, the defects that you get in the silicon, the probability of getting a defect on your chip starts going up like that. The yield uh, uh, on producing the thing comes down like that, and the cost goes up like that. And it becomes impossible. So, um, so you can't make the thing just bigger and bigger. And so creative engineers took some inspiration from uh, skyscrapers in New York and started building these things in, in 3D as well. But when you get into the geometry of this type of structure in 3D, um, then it's a bit like, it's not quite like building a skyscraper in New York. It's, it's a bit harder than that when it comes to uh, tolerances and lining things, lining things up. So people have to get very, uh, very creative. Now, back to nature. Um, we could get creative, and as arrogant 27-year-old engineers, we could um, you know, think we don't need anybody from HR, uh, and um, we can solve all the world's problems. Have a look at this. Between 2012 and 2018, uh, the battery has, you know, really improved in terms of, uh, in terms of energy density. Uh, I mean, it's improved, you know, not quite 50%, but, but quite a lot. Except when you look at nature's product, because a bar of chocolate's loosely based on a natural product, um, <clears throat> then you say, well, it's great that we've moved from four and a half calories to uh, six and a half calories, um, but we're still a long, long way short of 200 plus. Uh, and all right, I maybe should have had 30 grams of chocolate instead of 50 grams of chocolate, but you know, the point, uh, the point holds. We are a long way short of nature. So we need to be creative and innovative to solve the sort of problems you have in the middle of a gas turbine, the sort of problems you have on a piece of, uh, on a piece of semiconductor. Um, and we'll continue to be innovative uh, as a profession. Um, but the bar in terms of where we, where we can get to is very, very high in terms of where nature already exists. And uh, th that is why I think we have a tremendous opportunity in engineering. You know, we're, we're nowhere near the limits of, uh, of what we can invent. And uh, somebody asked me a question earlier about artificial intelligence and was this going to put all our engineers out of a job? I don't think it's going to put all of our engineers out of a job. Um, you know, we can design much better semiconductors today because of the design tools that we have. We can design much better turbine blades today because of the design tools that we have. And artificial intelligence is another, another leap forward in, uh, in the tools that we have available for our engineers to help us uh, catch, up with, uh, catch up with nature. Um, now I want to switch to business because this is a business school. Um, and uh, the, the thing about doing all these innovative things is that it costs a ton of money. So here's some facts and figures about Concord. And as I was coming to Bristol, I thought, well, we might as well use the, the, the Concord example. Um, and you can see there how the uh, development cost escalated uh, significantly uh, compared with the initial estimates. Um, I don't know if anybody in the room was involved in the, in the Concorde project, but um, it must have been very exciting at the time. 
um, but very hairy if you happen to be uh, looking after the investment. Um, <clears throat> and clearly, uh, this is not the sort of business case uh, that, uh, that, 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 is, that is there for everybody. Um, it's a bit of a niche sport uh, doing, <laughs> doing that sort of thing. Um, the world of semiconductors, again, it's not for the faint-hearted at all. Um, here is uh, R&D investment by, uh, by the top 10 uh, semiconductor companies in the world. And um, the top 10 semiconductor companies in the world basically uh, account for about half of the overall R&D investment. And there are literally hundreds of semiconductor companies in the world. Um, and uh, you have to invest a significant uh, portion of your, your uh, sales in R&D. And that's great. You know, then you've done some really cool design. Only trouble is we've got to make it. Uh, and so then you have to invest an absolute fortune in, um, in CapEx uh, to make it after you've, after you've designed it. So solving these problems uh, from a technical point of view is very exciting and there's a long runway and we can do much more uh, exciting things. Um, but it costs a ton of money. And so where's the money going to come from? Well, a normal business is like sort of, you can think, it's sort of operating in the box there. Uh, we create some stuff uh, and we sell it to customers and hopefully it has some value uh, and hopefully we can, we've got some good salespeople and they can persuade the customer to pay a little bit more um, than it costs us to make the thing. Um, in exchange for all the value that they're getting. Um, and I can ex I've extended the diagram beyond the sort of traditional uh, enterprise and customer to show that there are other flows of, uh, of, of money here. I mean, the money in the first place typically comes from investors. Um, but investors, you know, are not, uh, are not sort of, um, they're not philanthropic completely. Uh, they, uh, they actually need a return. And so the enterprise has to generate enough to, uh, to compensate those investors for parking their capital uh, with, the, with the enterprise rather than parking it somewhere else. An enterprise that's working in a country like, uh, like the UK is, uh, is something that the government should be interested in because it provides employment and, uh, and, and the like. And um, typically, you find governments investing in these sorts of things as well. They might be investing in skills through universities uh, and, and the like. Um, and the enterprises are normally happy to pay uh, some tax uh, in, uh, in exchange for that, that investment. And sometimes, uh, the enterprises look outside to the world of academia, uh, where there's a little bit more basic science done. And, um, and, and the companies get value from that, that, uh, that science in exchange uh, for the investment. Um, and in order to make, so in order to make it work, the, uh, the, the money has to come. If you look at where the money's actually flowing from, it's that point at the far right of the slide, the value going to the customer and, um, and the money coming back from the customer in exchange for all that value. So in the case of Rolls-Royce, for instance, it's you and me paying money to get on an aeroplane and go from A to B, and a tiny little bit of that money finds its way back 
to Rolls-Royce via the airline, uh, and that's what that basically is what pays uh, for the activity of the enterprise. And if we can get creative as a as a society, we can get a bit more creative. Um, then that's where you can get some super uh, return um, by creating uh, better products, uh, and then there's more money uh, to flow back through uh, through increased taxes, so that the governments can invest in making life better for people uh, within society. Um, governments can invest a bit more uh, in science, and investors can make a bigger return as well, so they can go away and invest in another enterprise and, um, and, and repeat the exercise. So excellent engineering must, must sort of have a good solution to, uh, to the technical challenges. You know, that, uh, that turbine blade, as I said, it's not like a baked Alaska. You know, it has to really work uh, 24 hours a day for many days of, of the year. So the engineering has to provide a good solution. But unless, as well as providing a good solution to the technical problem, it makes sound business sense, then it's not really very good engineering because um, the, the system, as described on the, on the previous slide, uh, doesn't work. So as engineers and technologists, we have to make sure that we can make money out of this exercise as well. Um, now, I just want to quickly close on some manufacturing comments. Um, there is a perception uh, that in the UK, manufacturing has kind of drifted overseas. And perception's reality is sort of has shrunk as a proportion of, uh, of GDP. And if you look at what's happened to various different countries, then you can see the UK line. The UK line is the low blue line um, that, is, uh, that is busy declining. Uh, the top blue line is China, which is, you could say for this period, essentially flat. Uh, and um, I, I'm, I'm not sure about the, uh, the data point at the end there, the spurious uh, leg down, but it's essentially, essentially flat. And of course, don't forget the economy's grown hugely in that period, and this is proportion stuff. So um, there, there has been uh, a drift to, uh, to other parts of the world. Um, however, Manufacturing is important to the UK. It, it, it remains a sizable chunk of, uh, of the UK economy. Um, and it, it delivers, you know, as in the case of Rolls-Royce, you know, delivers a lot of our export revenue. Uh, it attracts, uh, demands a lot of, um, of R&D investment. And you saw the charts on the semiconductor capex and, and so on. It's an expensive business. Um, but there are some social capital advantages as well. Now, some slides from um, some of our manufacturing people would sort of look at the last several years and say, if you take an example like machining, what we do is we, we basically cast large lumps of metal and then cut bits off to make them into the right, in, into the appropriate size to build components for, uh, for engines. So machining is a very important part of uh, the manufacturing that we actually do. Uh, and you know, once upon a time, that was a fairly manual process, uh, not very repeatable, uh, therefore expensive, therefore engineers couldn't have very tight tolerances on designs and, and so on. And then gradually, as more automation uh, gets introduced, you get the benefits of repeatability, increased yield, 
um, low, effectively uh, low, lower costs and so on. Uh, and over the last 30 years, then uh, we've seen a significant improvement in how long it takes to make things um, and what we're actually able to make. Um, <clears throat> handful, looking forward, there's a handful of interesting manufacturing technologies. And I was given a little tour of, uh, of the building somewhere just outside here, uh, and, uh, and, and saw some, um, some of the uh, robotics activity uh, going on. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a whole series now of different types of technology finding its way into the manufacturing world. It's not just about automating cutting bits of metal. Um, there were some very interesting things I saw on uh, being... being being deployed over just outside here around additive uh, manufacturing. There's, uh, we can talk about making measurements with optics and, and so on. Um, basically, uh, technology coming into the world of, of manufacturing. Um, and, and actually, the sort of circle's closing a bit here because it is about uh, higher performance. Uh, higher performing uh, microprocessors that's enabling a lot of this uh, manufacturing technology. Um, and here are some examples of what you can do with light. I was quite surprised uh, a few years ago that um, at companies like Rolls-Royce, we, we actually did, did quite a lot of manual measuring. And when I asked about, you know, why didn't we just use cameras in multiple axes and look at it and do some data processing? Well, the answer is that the, the processing capability uh, wasn't, wasn't there enough to do it at sufficient resolution. Um, and so it's sort of waiting for Moore's law and waiting for the processing capability, that chart I had with the smartphones, to find its way uh, through into the manufacturing technology. Um, as we look forward, then you know, that's a reality now. And, uh, and we can make measurements like that. And we can get more repeatable. And we, uh, and we can um, basically get, get, get to lower costs. Um, so if you apply lots of these different technologies uh, to the manufacturing world, you find a whole lot of opportunities uh, opening up. And I can't tell you which ones of these manufacturing technologies are going to be you know, the, the answer that enables different businesses to, because different businesses doing different things will, will major on different uh, technologies. But there are lots of opportunities for our young engineers today uh, to, uh, to deploy uh, their, their creativity. Um, deploying their creativity with, and if you if you look at those uh, those six or five really uh, categories of um, uh, of manufacturing technology, and integrate that with the design process uh, and and so on. So increasingly, um, you know the world the world is, is marketplace is is global. Um, I think, uh, I think as technology encroaches in, uh, in manufacturing more and more, there's an opportunity to not just, um, not, not necessarily drift, take, take the drift of manufacturing back from places like China to places like the UK, but there is a leveling of the playing field. The reason that manufacturing 
drifted away from the UK from 1970s uh, onwards was really all about you know, when the machining was much more manual and it's about dollars per hour for, um, for labor. Um, but as computing uh, replaces labor uh, as, uh, as, as the value added uh, element in, in the manufacturing process, so there is an opportunity uh, for the playing field to be leveled. And it's up to us uh, to, to do something with that leveling of the playing field. It's not a guaranteed uh, change around, but it's an opportunity which, is, which has not been presented before. If you go back to my question about the photonics and why was Rolls-Royce not using photonics, well, actually, the compute power wasn't available. Why is AI just becoming becoming a thing that we've been talking about for the last several years. You know, we were talking about AI in the late 1970s, but it didn't really catch on at that stage. And it didn't catch on because the compute power wasn't available to realize the, the, the promise of, uh, of AI. But the compute power is, is now becoming much more available. And so AI becomes a tool that we can deploy. Um, I, I, I'm not sure I should be showing this at, uh, <laughs> at uh, UWE, but um, anyway, I'm moving swiftly on. <laughs> Excuse me. There are lots of uh, there are lots of universities in the UK, and, um, and the interesting thing is this. So this is the top of uh, some uh, global league table, uh, but actually, if you look at uh, a bit further into the global league table, you'll find that. You know, the UK has got five in the top 25. For the business schools, it's a similar story. Uh, I mean, the basic, uh, and, and, and if you look at um, the share of world GDP in population, you know, we're much, much smaller as a country than we are in terms of presence in, uh, in academia, both in, um, in sort of broader universities and in, in the world of, of business schools. So... Uh, I think building on that and remembering my diagram with the, the outside uh, link to academia um, that enterprises can, can benefit from, then um, actually we can build successful engineering and technology companies, or we have the opportunity to build successful engineering and technology companies, taking advantage of the level uh, playing field uh, that's there. And, um, and that's essentially what I wanted to say this evening. So I'll finish at that point, and I'm sure we've got time for some Q&A. First of all, I'd just like to thank Warren very much for a really fascinating tour through your personal history, but also through where we are going at the moment with technology and, uh, and the human dimension, I think, is so critical. So thank you very much, and we have a small token. <laughs> thank, thank, thank you very much. So um, we now have a short time to take questions from the audience, and um, we have colleagues with microphones here. So if you have a question and I pick you out, then please do speak to the microphone because then we'll get the recording in the session. Thank you very much. So um, definitely, you were first. <laughs> Would you like to take the mic? Colin Waterhouse, I do actually work for you. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, 
all electric aircraft is going to be quite a change. How do you think we're going to avoid the Concorde scenario and similarly the Titanic scenario? Mm. Well, that's a very good question. Um, I, think, I think an all-electric aircraft is obviously many years away, and so it's something that we will, we will iterate uh, towards. And, uh, and, you know, the hybrid option or the hybrid point on, on, on the journey is one that we will certainly go through, and I think you can see that in the world of automotive. Uh, you've seen it in the world of ships. Uh, and, um, and you'll see it in the world of aeroplanes. It's, it's the same, same journey. Um, there's no guarantee that you avoid uh, the Titanic scenario. Um, I think if I look at the number of uh, electric flight startups there are at the moment, there's, uh, there's you know, 100 or more well-funded uh, electric startups in the world at the moment. Actually, the number is, is around about 130 uh, and uh, publicly announced funded. Um, and less than 12 months ago, uh, the number was less than 100. So it's, it's an area that's attracting a lot of investment at the moment. But a lot of those startups don't have 70, 80 plus years, 100 years of, of domain expertise that a company like Rolls-Royce has. And um, I think it's important to, you know, yes, all the electric technology stuff's very interesting, um, but that domain expertise and knowledge uh, that a company like Rolls-Royce has is essential to make sure that you don't have, or to minimize the probability of uh, a, a Titanic incident. Um, how do you avoid a Concord business uh, <laughs> scenario? Um, well, I think there are two different worlds. I mean, clearly Concord was a, uh, there was a lot of public funding uh, that went into, into Concord and it was a bit of a moonshot uh, project. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, electric flight is, uh, you know, w we live in a different time and it's going to be produced ultimately under commercial terms uh, and um, you know with companies with companies with commercial investment um, be they public companies like Rolls-Royce or, uh, or or startup companies and those investors uh, are going to be a, probably a little bit tougher on um, on the project than, uh, than than happened in the in the days of Concord so I, I think Concord was a fantastic sort of romantic story, but, um, you know, that's it. It's, it's not going to happen again like that. Two up there. Hello, uh, Andrew Lynch from the uh, Sunday Times. Um, thank you for a, a very thoughtful and uh, informative talk. But your argument at the end about levelling the playing field seems to me to run counter to your predecessors, John Rose, in the, uh, uh, another newspaper uh, uh, on Monday, um, uh, who was uh, talking about how great Singapore was to go uh, <laughs> to, to, to set up a, a factory or whatever, and, and probably you're the Rolls-Royce is the largest um, British technology company, I suspect, in, in, um, in Singapore. Mm -hmm. um, 
But wouldn't that argument have been quite um, useful in discouraging James Dyson, <laughs> upon whose board you sit, yeah. from perhaps uh, sending his corporate headquarters to uh, Singapore? Yes. Having, having signed up to do this talk and having decided on what I was going to do, um, <clears throat> imagine my horror uh, <laughs> when, uh, when, when I uh, realised the, uh, the, the timing of, uh, of the James Dyson announcement. No, I think the reason I say a levelling of the playing field uh, rather than a, a sort of switching around of the playing field... Um, it's 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 all about initiative, and you know there'll be a different story for different companies. In um, you know Rolls Royce, if we want to ship a, a, a um, an, an engine around the world, uh, and most of the shipping of our engines around the world is not about engine deliveries. It's about engines that are coming off airplanes to be repaired and, and sent to different different shops, and have heavy components shipped to where they're being where they're being fixed. Um, then actually it, it doesn't make sense to do everything in, uh, in, in the UK, in, in Derby. So, you know, I can quite understand um, my predecessors' uh, decisions about, you know, location. Uh, and actually we build, we build heavy engines in multiple locations around the world, and Singapore just happens to be one of them. Uh, we actually build most of our large engines in, in Derby in the UK. Uh, and so, um, you know, there's a, there's a place for the UK in in that as well. Uh, you, you've read the the arguments around uh, around James Dyson, and you know, cars are, are also quite heavy, and uh, and there's certainly going to be a larger electric vehicle market over the next 15 years or so uh, in China than there is in the UK. Uh, and therefore, it does make a deal of sense for uh, for Dyson to be uh, to be manufacturing um, things like things like cars in that region rather than perhaps um, perhaps in the UK. Uh, that doesn't take away from the general argument that the increase in compute power, uh, enabling technology to pervade uh, manufacturing, presents us with a an opportunity that we've not been presented with uh, over the well since um, since manufacturing you know, moved out of Western Europe because uh, it isn't just the UK that chart also showed it's basically Western Europe um, we haven't had that opportunity before whether we're able to capitalize on that opportunity or not I cannot say um, but uh, it it could be that the UK with its uh, with its blend of good business sense, its, uh, its pun ability to punch above its weight in terms of engineering and technology uh, and academia. Um, you know, these are advantages we have. Now we need to play those advantages on the level playing field. Um, somebody right at the back there who's next, I think. Thanks, Warren. Great talk. Um, Neil Cutting from Jacobs. Um, going back to the title of the lecture this evening, you know it was going to come as a question, but how do you think Brexit is going to help or hinder 
UK being a natural home for global engineering technology champions? Um, it's, it's probably going to interrupt, uh, but I don't think it's going to be a long-term uh, hindrance. Again, it's up to us how we play this. Um, now, I was fairly, fairly vocal, admittedly wearing a Rolls-Royce hat. I was fairly vocal that you know, coming out of the UK is not the smartest of moves for us economically. Um, however, uh, you know, that does seem to be what the population uh, wants by a small margin. Uh, and uh, somehow the politicians are, um, are iterating their way uh, you know, perhaps to, uh, to a conclusion. I don't know, I haven't looked at the news in the last five minutes. <laughs> you know, we, we just have to accept that as a, a, as a reality. And the title says global. And, um, you know, there are five, six hundred, six hundred and something uh, million people in, uh, in, in Western Europe and the, the sort of EEC. So it is a big market. And the UK trades a lot uh, with, uh, with, with Europe. Um, and we'll have to find, you know, a new modus operandi in terms of trading with Europe. But for engineering and technology companies, um, you know, it really is a global market out there. And the world is a much bigger place, you know, 7 mil billion people uh, today and uh, 10 billion people in uh, a couple of decades' time. And so I think, I think we need to raise our, our sights and remember the discussions the, that we were having before ever there was a Brexit referendum uh, when you know people would ask me questions like this and I would be talking about the opportunities for UK companies in Asia. Well, those opportunities haven't gone away. Uh, and the reality is that you know either UK and European companies are going to uh, benefit from some of that opportunity um, or they're not. And uh, if we sit on our hands and obsess with, um, with the, the, the business opportunities between the UK and Europe, then uh, for sure somebody else is going to benefit from those larger global opportunities. A lady in the middle there. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Um, if engineering is no longer about brawn, but is about brains and innovation and behaviour, how can we increase the number of women who study engineering? Because I'm just looking at this audience, and let's face it, there don't seem to be very many. Yeah. I, wish, I wish I had the magic answer for that. Um, I'm married to a mechanical engineer, uh, and my eldest daughter is a mechanical engineer. Uh, and the, the sad reality is that the proportion of female engineers when my wife did a degree and the proportion of female engineers when my eldest daughter did a degree was more or less identical uh, at about 10%. Um, and uh, I, I honestly don't, don't know what we have to do in this country to make it different. If you go to India, uh, the proportions are, are, are much more sort of balanced. Uh, if you go to the US, the proportions are, are much more balanced. Um, so I think you have to get to children young, uh, and in particular uh, with girls, you have to inspire mothers. Uh, and we don't have, um, we don't have, as you point out, that many female engineers. So we have to 
we have to work from a, a small base and, uh, and convince mothers that engineering can be a very rewarding career. I think engineers don't do a particularly good job of, of talking about the impact of engineering on society. I've tried to paint a picture here where, as society, we, we got some really big problems. You know, we're either going to run out of food, water, or we're going to cook the planet. Uh, and engineering isn't the answer for all of those things. Um, it isn't entirely the answer, but it's a very important part of, of making the world a better place and overcoming those challenges. Uh, and I think if we start selling engineering to young girls uh, a little bit more like that, the positive impact that engineering can make on society, rather than, well, isn't my engine bigger than yours, um, <laughs> then, uh, then, then we're going to excite more girls and, and get them into the profession. We would love to work with you on that in, at UWE. We do a lot of work working with young kids to inspire them. But, uh, question over there. Hi, everyone. My name is um, Julian Mensa, and um, I wanted to go back to a lot of the questions regarding manufacturing outside rather than the UK. Um, and I actually understand James Dyson's move to go, and I actually support it as a you know, young entrepreneur here. However, my question is, would you argue that what we need to be protecting in the UK is the knowledge and the uh, intellectual property we have because from what I've come to understand, businesses like Dyson and even Rolls-Royce and other businesses focus more on R&D when it comes to the UK and do a lot of manufacturing outside. Um, and there are companies coming into the UK to focus on R&D. So would you say maybe our focus should be on developing that knowledge and expanding on that and actually taking advantage of the um, Far East in terms of their capability to mass produce rather than complain and focus on um, the fact that certain manufacturing capabilities are going outside the UK. Mm. Um, yes, I, I didn't intend to say, you know, it's all about manufacturing. Um, uh, the manufacturing was, if you like, a piece of the jigsaw. Um, the design and the intellectual property is part of it. So if you take a company like Arm, for instance, you know, Arm doesn't do any uh, manufacturing. Uh, Arm you know, all ARM microprocessors are made by somebody that is not ARM. Uh, and, and yet, you know, ARM is the most ubiquitous microprocessor on the planet. Uh, there are, I don't know, multiple ARMs per, per person on the planet today, and probably three or four for every man, woman, and child uh, shipped on, a, on an annual basis. So, um, you know, it's perfectly possible to be a global industry leader uh, without manufacturing anything. However, uh, I, I included the manufacturing bit to say, you know, even in the world of, um, of manufacturing, where manufacturing is an important part of the jigsaw, if you take something like uh, engines for aeroplanes, then you know, the volumes are so small uh, that you're basically going to have to manufacture your own engines because you know, somebody else doing it uh, on, on something like a sort of arm like just doesn't work. Um, so, uh, you know, there you are bound to the manufacturing. And um, there's an opportunity, I'm, I'm just saying is an opportunity to, uh, to start doing perhaps just simply hold our heads a bit higher uh, when it comes to manufacturing in the UK. Question over there. 
Hi, George Romagulli from Atkins. Um, you talk about the UK as a whole punching above our weight with academia, innovation, and all those kinds of things. Um, how can we maintain and enhance that? And, and who would you say, uh, kind of not on a whole basis, but who, who needs to take the onus for that? Is, that? is that governmental? Is that private enterprise? Is that universities? Yeah, um, I think one of the ways in which we, we maintain that is remembering that that innovation is is part of an ecosystem and unless you unless you put that that thing like the diagram i had where there's an actual businesses creating value and delivering more value to customers uh, and recycling that that capital then you don't you don't sustain it uh, and so it isn't just about you know concentrating on universities or concentrating on venture capital for for startups it's about joining up all of the all of the ecosystem uh, and if we join up all of the ecosystem then um, then you will find more thriving innovation and you know there's been a lot of uh, work I'm sure in the business school here uh, there's uh, there's people who know a lot more about ecosystems uh, than I do um, but uh, the, you know the, there's a lot been written on the fact that, uh, and, and Bristol is a good example of, another word for an ecosystem might be a cluster. Uh, so um, Bristol is a great example where, um, where there's a, a, a cluster of, uh, of innovation that, that develops. Cambridge um, uh, was another example of a, of a cluster um, which developed a, a healthy ecosystem. And it's interesting, you had a university in Oxford and a university in Cambridge. And for, for many years, Cambridge developed a much more successful startup uh, and innovation culture than Oxford. Perhaps because the automotive industry in Oxford meant that Oxford didn't need to develop uh, an innovative um, uh, ecosystem like Cambridge did. Uh, but Cambridge did more than just Nobel Prizes. There was a whole uh, so, so support network, um, uh, financial community, uh, lawyers. Um, it, it, it was a broad ecosystem, uh, which Oxford didn't enjoy uh, for, for quite a while. I'm aware there's quite a lot of questions, but we do need to wrap up shortly. I have one final question, the gentleman at the back. Thank you. Uh, Dave Curran from Aerosprite. Uh, given the fact that the aerospace design workforce is an average age of 57, do you see knowledge retention as being an issue over the next decade? Uh, of course, if, uh, if you don't do anything about it, then, um, then knowledge retention is, is an issue over the next decade. I think it's up to companies like Rolls-Royce, like Airbus, um, in, in places like Bristol to, to do something about it. And uh, one of the things that we're doing is, um, is deliberately trying to drive down our average age, give younger people more responsibility, and, 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 so that we can, um, so, so that we can actually revitalize uh, that, uh, that knowledge and expertise because when I talked about avoiding the Titanic moment and the, the necessity of, of companies like Rolls-Royce to be involved with uh, you know, decades of domain expertise, uh, then of course that domain expertise is 
quite a lot in people's heads. Uh, and so we absolutely uh, need to pay attention to um, maintaining that knowledge and, and passing it on. Right. I think we should call it to a halt, though. There's still plenty of questions I've seen on, so maybe if you're around afterwards, you can <coughs> yeah. take questions. Um, we have some refreshments served up in the atrium shortly. Um, apparently, if you need to collect a certificate for this event as a CPD event, you can talk to our event staff at the top as well. Um, let me conclude by thanking Warren once again for spending the time with us, sharing his knowledge and answering our, our many and somewhat challenging questions. Thank you very much. For more information on the Bristol Lectures series, including details on how you can attend, visit uwe.ac.uk forward slash Bristol Lectures or follow the hashtag Bristol Lectures.